You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello there, Brandon. How you doing? Quite good, Professor Lowry. How are you? I'm doing fine. And feel free to call me Glenn if you want to. Glenn Lowry here at the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. I'm back. I'm Brown University, professor of economics and professor of international public affairs at the Watson Institute at Brown, which sponsors the Glenn Show. And I am with Brandon Abunu. And Brandon is a professor of biology uh, here at Brown uh, and is a geneticist. And uh, we're just going to have a little talk. And I'm going to learn a lot from Brandon about uh, the science behind uh, how people are thinking about this COVID-19 viral epidemic pandemic that has uh, besieged us. So welcome, Brandon. Thank you. Really, really pleasure being here. What do you want people to know about your background and accomplishments before you start? Oh, uh, uh, well, um, as you know, I'm I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and I'm an affiliate with the Center for Computational Molecular Biology. Uh, My training uh, is kind of, you know, I'm a a, a biologist who uses computational tools and some experimental tools to ask kind of questions in genetics. um, And I've also studied epidemics. So I kind of I, I kind of feast on kind of complicated problems in biology, problems involving kind of multiple interacting parts and features and actors. And uh, so I, you know, deconstructing complex phenotypes in, in genetics are kind of one area of interest, but also, you know, things like epidemics, how they uh, arise from the interaction between hosts and parasites in society. So uh, I think this is an area that I've thought about now for quite some time. Well, I feel uh, fortunate to be able to ask you a few questions and hear you, um, you know, opine a little bit on uh, the topic of the day. Uh, I don't understand this virus. I don't know why it it, uh, is so dangerous, so uh, contagious, uh, and uh, why its uh, advent constitutes such a global emergency. And I don't know much about how the science of you know, developing responses to this condition plays out. And, and you know, I just thought I'd pick your brain a little bit about that. So uh, are you teaching at all on this subject now? It seems like it would be a fit thing for uh, a guy like you to be doing. <laughs> well, and, uh, I, so tell us what you're, what you're saying. I mean, I've got too sure. many questions. I should let sure. you know. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to answer any and all things as best as, as my, to my ability. Well, I'm teaching a course on microbial evolution and ecology. Um, and conveniently, right, that is a, a course that's designed to teach basic concepts about the way microbes live in this world and how evolution shapes them and where they live and how they live. And, um, and, and, and that includes what we microbes that cause disease and those that do not. Uh, but conveniently, you know, I think COVID-19 is a very, very kind of living example of microbial evolution and ecology concepts playing out in real time. And so, you know, we kind of, I made the executive decision and it was, it was a little bit challenging a decision to make because part of me was like, well, maybe there's COVID exhaustion. I don't want to kind of talk about COVID too much. At the same time, I thought it was a, it's just too important in everyone's mind. This is a good opportunity for us to kind of learn fundamental concepts in microbial ecology and evolution through this pandemic. Okay. Um, and that's what we've done. And so we covered everything from basic concepts about viral phylogeny, this concept of how, you know, uh, species and taxa are in- related to one another, um, which is, we, which of course plays out in understanding the origins we, as we understand them of, uh, 
SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, which is the disease. Uh, we have other questions about how it relates to SARS-CoV-1, which is the cause of, you know, the first SARS kind of widespread uh, outbreak from the early 2000s. Uh, we have questions about kind of the way viruses jump from species to species Interesting questions about, um, you know, uh, control the immune system, how, you know, how organisms respond, basic things about vaccinology. We're even going to work some mathematical modeling. That's been all, also been a very, very kind of contentious topic with COVID-19 is the use of mathematical models as an economist. Uh, certainly you understand. And I, I think uh, the economists have actually gotten into the ring when it's sort of speak when it's come to understanding uh, COVID-19's uh you know, predictions for how it's going to spread. So we, we cover a range of topics on that. In addition to that, on COVID-19, I've done a good, I've done a bit of writing on this, actually. And my, my research group is actually uh, preparing uh, some studies, manuscripts on COVID-19 in the mathematical modeling sphere. So uh, I've kind of tried to think about this problem carefully. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe we could start just with this family of viruses and mm-hmm. how the mutation process works and where mm-hmm. they, where they come from, one from mm-hmm. another. So coronaviruses are many different uh, microbes. Uh, they are somehow related to each other in terms of their genetic structure and they've evolved mm-hmm. from one another in some way. Tell me about that. Sure, sure, sure. So the coronaviruses are a large family of viruses and they include many, many, many different viruses that we're familiar with. Obviously SARS-CoV-1, which caused the first, uh, you know, uh, first, you know, SARS kind of widespread pandemic in the early in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, uh, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is another coronavirus, um, and really viruses that are associated with the common cold. Um, yeah, we are, are a part of the coronavirus kind of large family. So there are a large family of viruses that circulate in many, many species throughout the world. Um, this, and what are some unique features of them? Now, I think the thing about Viruses in general is the way we think about relationships with viruses is a little bit different. It's not like viruses are like living things. They're not cellular life. They're not like human beings. They're not like bacteria. They're not like, right? They're not cellular living things. They're kind of, so the rules of biology as we understand them and the rules of phylogeny as we understand them with regards to interrelationships are a little bit different. So, for example, think about human beings. There's a tree of life. We all kind of go back to a common ancestor, right? And, and, and that's where these kind of different domains, and now they're saying there's two domains, but there, there was three kind of major domains. There's a lot of debates about that. Viruses is not quite the case. There's no, like, ancestor of all viruses as we understand it. Viruses are so vastly different from one another in structure and type in the way that their genomes are structured. I mean, it's so vast and different than one another that it's our rules of understanding cellular life don't even really translate. Now, in the context of coronavirus, um, it's this one family of viruses, and there are some things that are fairly unique about it. Um, It has an RNA genome, which means its genomic information is made out of RNA and not DNA, okay, like a lot of viruses, Ebola and HIV and a lot of others. Um, but it has one of the largest RNA genomes of any virus that we've seen. In fact, I think the largest of we've seen. So basically, it's a big virus genetically that has an RNA genome. And with that, we think come, that might be one of the reasons why we see a lot of different coronaviruses having success jumping from species to species because perhaps that large genome confers some kind of adaptability. It kind of has this, and we don't, we don't, this is what the hypothesis is. We don't, we can't say this uh, with any kind of authority, but this is what we suspect. Now I got to ask what's going to seem like a very elementary question. Is it alive? 
Great question. So uh, I'll answer this question. <laughs> you no, said it's not a cell, so it's I'm a just great trying question. to figure out what. So, so I'll answer this question the way of a famous uh, biologist named Eugene Coonan answered it, which is the question of whether or not a virus is a living thing or not is not a scientific question. It's an epistemological question. <laughs> and, and the idea there is it's really like it depends on what you mean by a living thing, frankly. So it does not obey the rules of the cell theory. The cell theory is the closest thing we have to rules defining life. You know, all cells come from pre-existing cells. All cells have DNA as their informational intermediate. And uh, all cells metabolize energy, right? Viruses don't, you know, I mean, some cell viruses have DNA genomes, but like they, they, they're, they're exclusively parasitic. They only live on other cells. Um, so, well, by and large, I mean, there's a few exceptions we think. So the, so basically by our general rules, no, they are not living things. They are, they are obligate parasites. Um, and, uh, and so they wouldn't fit under a cellular life. They are biological light. They have these features of biological things, but they okay, are not so themselves then, living. Here, here comes uh, uh, overly simplistic question number two. If it's not alive, how do you kill it? Or perhaps what I mean to say is how do you rid yourself of yes. something that you can't kill? That's right. So um, n- not to keep dropping these quotes and probably famous quote from um, Predator, right? Uh, when they were trying <laughs> to hunt the Predator, one of the best movies ever, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Talking about the Predator. Because when they smell the blood. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and uh which is a great line it's an iconic science fiction line um so the point is killing doesn't mean the same thing as it does for like life where you kind of like deconstruct the cellular processes associated with the organism doing a thing killing just means kind of like in a very banal engineering sense of deconstructing it pulling apart so that it can no longer replicate it can no longer infect um, that's that. That's what killing means in the context of virus. This, it is no longer capable of being able to carry out the functions of what a virus does, which are infect cells and replicate. Um, that's what killing. That's what constitutes killing in the viral context. Okay, so uh, where do these things come from? Viruses in general, or, or the well, coronavirus? I'm talking about this coronavirus family. Mm-hmm. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the the, the ones that can cause great damage yep, to yep, human yep. populations. Yep. So they circulate in many different, mostly mammalian species, right? That's that's kind of one thing, right? Um, the ones that seem to cause the most, the worst diseases, so SARS, CoV one, SARS CoV two, circulate in bats and a couple of other inter- other other species as well. But we see them circulating in bats. Um, the ones that call the common cold, the coronaviruses that cause the common cold, mostly circulate in rodents. We think um, this is a tip. This tips us off to its origin, right? So, if we look at the SARS-CoV-2 virus that's causing right this global pandemic of COVID-19, it has ni- about ninety-six percent genomic similarity. If you line up its genome uh, to another genome, similarity to a virus that we've observed circulating in bats. So that tips us off as to kind of what happened in terms of its origin. You know, uh, we think that it, um, it, it actually was, uh, a virus that was circulating in bats and spilled over into, uh, human species. Okay. Now the virus, as I understand you, is a parasite. It lives, uh, in host. In the case at hand, the host would be bat populations. Uh, is it, uh, injurious to the, you know, the life mm-hmm. prospects of the host in those mm-hmm. po- animal populations? Doesn't appear to be. Doesn't appear to be in the natural hosts in which it circulates. Um, it does not, does not appear to be especially injurious. 
Um, and I think that's the thing about viral ecology is, you know, we, we carry a lot of viruses that conceivably are injurious to other species. I mean, they, they do, a lot of viruses live perfectly kind of, you know, peacefully, if you will. Um, so it does not appear to, um, cause the disease. I think what we've observed, this is actually a cutting edge topic now is, uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, looks like it does cause symptoms in tigers. We were discovering this. There was a tiger in the, in the Bronx Zoo, uh, that, yeah, yeah, it was a tiger in the Bronx Zoo who conceivably got this from a zookeeper of some kind. So my point is we're learning this now in terms of some of the other species that it can live in, uh, and cause disease versus not. But, uh, but no, it's, it's natural reservoir is what we call kind of the, the animal species that it circulates in naturally. Uh, generally speaking, no, it is not injurious. Now, am I mistaken in uh, thinking as a lot of the popular press is reporting that uh, these viruses, SARS, uh, COVID-19, others uh, are emerging out of uh, the East uh, with relatively greater frequency than other places? Or uh, is that so MERS was a Middle Eastern uh, phenomenon? But, yeah, you know, um, anyway, (sighs) the question that and and it's got a political uh, uh, underlay to it because people are saying Wuhan virus, China virus. Yeah, I mean, et cetera. You know, I mean, I, I, as, an, as somebody who thinks about the ecology of it, I mean, where you have a lot of people and you have a lot of people interacting with wildlife, you're going to get a lot of diseases in general. So, um, Right, you're gonna get a lot of marine free. So Ebola, right, for example, right from central, you know, in central and you know, central Africa mostly, um, emerges from its interaction between people and wildlife there. I think the East, as you described it, um, has the most people in the world. So I think we have a lot of people in a place, and they're kind of buttressed against kind of a lot of species. I mean, so to me, I just it's just a statistical artifact. Of right, I don't think there's anything. Yeah, so the answer is yes. There is yes, it is in the east, and we we are seeing these come out of the east. But that's just a that's just a population size and ecology phenomenon. I don't it, nothing I, to do with the uh, the wet market stuff that I hear people talking about. Uh, I mean, you know, I think again. I mean, I think I think any activity, and maybe not, or maybe not again. I didn't quite say this clearly before, but any activity that increases the interaction between people that had that, that that is involved in the encroachment of species onto other species, you're going to increase the probability of an of an emergence event. So it's just a, it's a statistical thing, and I think there you have that. I mean, I think there's economic pressures that, as you know, right, that encourage kind of the the exploitation of. Um, or the use of other kind of food sources and what have you. So I think insofar as you have that, um, I think, I think it, it probably does have something to do with it. Uh, but I think the notion, I think it, we would be unwise kind of biologically and ecologically to think that that can't happen, that can only happen in one part of the world. I just think we just need to think about it as the interaction between humans and species and, uh, you're likely to get a, a, a an emergency event that way. But let me put it a little bit differently. Would you would you counsel that uh, people wherever they are, China or any place else, ought to uh, limit or uh, diminish the amount of the kind of human animal interaction mm-hmm. that one imagines goes on mm-hmm. in something like these wet markets, in the interest of mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, reducing the probability mm-hmm. that an event of this sort. So what I'll say is a great question. And what I'll say is, uh, what, what I'll give like the the public health recommendation version of it. I mean, I'm not, I can't really comment on all of the things that on the, the culture. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to say that. What I can say is 
personal protective equipment and things of that nature are going to be very, very important. So, I mean, I th- those things can happen, but I would, I would say, you know, personal protective equipment. I think given the number of viruses we've seen come out of there, that specific, uh, that populations, yeah, I think kind of increasing regulations and things of that nature, um, are, is probably a good idea. Um, you know, as we saw from, you know, bird flu, uh, several years ago, um, you know, there's a lot of a slaughtering of chickens because of this. So there were agriculture trap practices that were changed. So, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I would say that we should just, we, I, I, I recommend personal protective equipment and kind of just a regulation of it and a kind of an, an increased hygiene and surveillance is what I would recommend from my expertise. Okay. Now you're a practicing scientist in this community, which I have to assume is a global community of scientists. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, uh, the, uh, uh, features of the genome of the uh, COVID-19 uh, 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 virus. Uh, I assume we know that because the genome has been sequenced, and I assume that mm-hmm. I understand that sequencing to have happened in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you, uh, do you read the journals and talk mm-hmm. to the, to, uh, to the investigators and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you all <laughs> talking to each other even now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I don't have any current Chinese collaborators in in China, uh, but I think some of my, some of my close collaborators do. And I I think you're right. I think there's a, this has been a, I think one of the, if there's a triumph of this thing and we're still dealing with it and it's causing a lot of pain and and will continue to, unfortunately. But, um, but it has been the rate at which science has progressed. And I think a lot of that has emerged directly from kind of cross continental global collaboration. So yeah, yeah. I think it is very, very global. Does politics play any role in that? I mean, well, are there restrictions on your ability to communicate with uh, colleagues? Uh-huh. Are the journals uh, edited by people who are n- not, you know, restrained by either the Chinese Communist Party on the one sure. side or the U.S., you know, security apparatus or sure. uh, science uh, funding apparatus or whatever? How, how open is the global scientific community yeah. for investigating these issues? So I can't speak. I mean, I, you know, I think so. I, well, I, I, what I'll say is on the scientific side with the scientific journals that, you know, we all read. Um, I don't think they're any more political than they usually are, which means there's always, there's always, you know, um, in the sense of I mean, there's always politics of prestige and and, oh, yeah. and, and what have you and, and who, you know, when I when when, you know, what what papers get published in which journal. I, I don't, I, I think that's always been true. And I think that's certainly is playing out in COVID-19. But I, I think, you know, there's been, there's been groups from China that have published in, despite a lot of the skepticism, which is completely well-founded with regards to the quality of the data and, and the reporting. And I, I get that. Um, but despite that, I mean, I think there are Chinese groups who have published incredible stuff on this and i think that have kind of built the early understanding through which the rest of us have you know i'm citing a lot of this work and it has appeared in kind of internationally read and recognized and respected journals so i think i think there is a lot of politics that have played out and i think certainly you know in in china there's a there's a there's a large apparatus of uh you know trying to you know uh control the narrative so to speak but that hasn't stopped a lot of really really cutting edge and important work out of China from being published that has informed a lot of my work and colleagues work. What do you say about the conspiracy theory uh, I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard that the virus escaped from some laboratory in Wuhan Mm -hmm. that's doing uh, research on viruses Mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. Well, the answer is I don't think that's true. So let me just say that flat out. I think, I think the reason why it's, it's complicated is um, well, number one, a lot of that was about, 
I feel was very, very kind of just initial xenophobia um, about it. And I think that fed a lot of the early xenophobia was that it was, um, and I think so that was kind of weaponized politically rather than, but I think there is like a perfectly reasonable scientific question, right? Of there are labs across the world have bioweapons in their freezers, right? Everyone. I mean, I, I, I would be surprised if anybody has more than the United States, for example. Um, and, you know, gain, we call them gain of function experiments where you, you kind of like move genes into a genome and see if, you know, there's like a new function that you can, it's like kind of like a bioengineering thing where you take a genome and you add pieces or you take g- pieces of the genome from different species, you put them together, see if you can kind of tinker. It's like an engineering a- exercise. The idea here is could an exercise like that conceivably, given kind of some of the nefarious practices of certain governments, could that conceivably right, create a virus like this? Well, sure. I think the evidence that we have when you actually line up the genome against the ones that we see circulating in nature it's extremely, extremely unlikely. This looks like a species, a species jump, a classic species jump, a species that was a virus that was uh, circulating in nature and kind of emerged from a species jump event. It does not, it doesn't have the signature of any kind of chimeric active engineering activity. So I, w- I would say no, that is, you know, not the case. What do you know about the uh, work that's going on in uh, hunting for a vaccine uh, here? Mm-hmm. Uh, does that relate at all to your area of expertise? Yeah, so I mean, I don't, and I've done virus evolution work. I haven't worked on vaccines, but certainly my understanding of virus evolution plays a role, you know, is, is important for understanding the potential for a vaccine. Uh, I think the vaccine is, um, the trials are on its way, and they're, they're kind of several candidates, and there are a lot of people working on it. And it's kind of focused on this spike protein, this one kind of protein that's on the surface. So a virus is kind of a, it, 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 virus is a very kind of crude, it's, it's crude yet sophisticated. It's a, it's a protein shell. There's a, the genome is inside. There's a protein shell outside of it. And there's an envelope, which is kind of like, you know, kind of like an actual envelope. And I think um, there's a spike protein that is, that sits outside. And that's the thing that interfaces with cells then that's the thing that binds to cells. And a lot of our vaccine efforts have been on that protein. I think based on what we, we really don't know until we've done the trial, but I think based on what we understand about the biology of the virus, we feel pretty there's, – there's reason to be optimistic that a, an effective vaccine uh, can – you know, put it this way, there's no, there's, no, there's no kind of signs that it necessarily should be a problem for a couple of reasons. Number one, the spike protein really seems to be the area of our focus – um, and the mutation rate in that protein, the mutation rate, I talked about the rate at which mutations are uh, made in general, is actually lower in SARS-CoV-2 than in influenza. Influenza actually has a higher rate of mutation than SARS-CoV-2, than really any of the coronaviruses. Now, why is that important? When you get the flu shot, generally speaking, one flu shot is pretty good for all the variants of flu you get that season. It's pretty good. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people do get a flu shot and can still get sick, but not not typically. Um, generally speaking, right? We, we've gotten so good at making a flu vaccine, we're able, we're pretty confident that the one that we get will get you through whatever variant you may see. Um, that's despite the fact that the flu vaccine mutates so much. So if you take a virus that mutates less than that, we're pretty confident that if we were able to engineer an effective vaccine that the body yields a strong immune response uh, to that it should have coverage. Now, how long is that coverage? How long would you need it? That's yet to be determined. Let me just inter- interrupt for a minute. You're saying where it's a moving target, mm-hmm. but if it doesn't move too fast, 
the thing that you introduced to try to deal with it where it is right now will probably be good at least for a while. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And in, in the case of influenza, we, we do it every season because it's very, very seasonal. Um, and that, you know, I mean, it, it, again, it still causes a lot of problems, but not, I mean, you know, vaccine, it's just been profoundly important, right, for, uh, for influenza. And I think it can be for SARS-CoV-2. Well, that brings me to the uh, uh, mitigation, uh, opening up the economy and all of that debate. In addition <laughs> to being a geneticist, you're also an epidemiology mm-hmm. uh, uh, expert. And I want to know how you react to what you must be reading in the newspaper, seeing on TV uh, about this debate, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about the relations between the federal and the state governments, mm-hmm. about the uh, effectiveness of mitigation, about the extent to which early models of epidemiological forecasting may have mm-hmm. overstated the mortality implications of this pandemic or may not have if you don't think they have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what, 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 what are you thinking uh, now? Uh, again, as a scientist listening to a lot of uh, people talking about this who are themselves mm-hmm. don't know what WTF they're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Um, you know, it's, it's frustrating. Um, yeah, there's a lot. And I think I have paid attention to this. I've actually done some writing at the intersection of the society and society and be very interested in hearing about that. Yeah. 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 And, and I think so. I've tried to, I try to be a scientist who does both of these things who kind of is at least responsibly responsible with regards to how I think about these issues. Um, now with regards to opening up the economy, I mean, I think we just need to think about, I, you know, I'm obviously not qualified to speak on the economic costs involved with a, you know, recession or, or what have you. Um, but what I will say is, um, when you take a look at the basic projections of the disease, how contagious it is as measured by, right, uh, you know, some features of the, of the disease that we have a pretty good estimations on now. And it's kind of, uh, you know, case fatality, right? You know, the number of the, you know, when you actually look at that, those numbers, um, doing nothing or underperforming with regards to, um, with regards to its, uh, mitigation efforts. I mean, we are talking about a lot of loss of life. It's not like, it's not, it's not, it's not a triviality. So, um, so when it comes to, you know, do I think people have been alarmist? No, I do not. Um, you know, I do not, and I, I and I, as a as a person who thinks about the public health interventions, yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think aggressive, uh, in, uh, aggressively intervening nice and early, ironically, aggressively aggressive intervention early would have been better both for the disease and the economy, <laughs> um, right? In, in, in many ways, I think, right, and I think that's what makes this disease interesting is we have you know some presumptive, and it's not, it's a little bit early to say. But we have some presumptive success stories, and I think if you look at the, the manner that it, the, the manner that I think Korea is the example, South Korea is the example, the best one. Uh, Japan's another one. Um, the, the manner that um, they aggressively got on top of it and addressed it, and they, they really they had their first cases not much earlier than the United States. Um, I think their economy is going to end up less damaged from it, also. So I guess my point is, uh, so, so that's my general stance. I can, I can, I'll stop there and I'll, I'll let you ask me more nuanced questions. Uh, but no, I think, I think, I do not think we have overstated the problem necessarily. I think we can get into the models and why the, some of those might have been the way they are. But my general stance is, 
that aggressive intervention was necessary and remains necessary. Well, let's talk about the models a little bit because, mm-hmm. um, again, uh, my inexpert sense is that uh, an Imperial College, University mm-hmm. of London study mm-hmm. uh, got everybody's attention that it forecasts that there could be many hundreds of thousands or even mm-hmm. millions of fatalities mm-hmm. uh, without uh, aggressive intervention, that the number of fatalities coming in has been less than what was initially mm-hmm. forecast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that some of this forecasting is based upon assumptions that um, are uh, very noisy. I mean, very hard to know if they're right or not because of the absence of data, especially mm-hmm. the absence of uh, random sample mm-hmm. testing of the population so that you can know how many people might be walking around without mm-hmm. symptoms mm-hmm. Uh, who might be carrying the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that a lot depends on the accuracy of these models. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think so. This is a fascinating conversation. I'm very kind of thrilled and honored to be having with you because I think econ uses model. It, it really does get to the function of what a model's purpose is. These are like very kind of almost almost epistemological questions of what the purpose of a model is. Now, like you just said, the thing about an outbreak is almost by definition you're not going to have a lot of data. You just don't. Like you don't. That's the point. Is you're, you're you don't have a lot of information feeding these things. Yeah. Um. And so your simulations almost are they just kind of they can't be anything but wrong. Uh, and and the point of them is not to be right person for person. Um. So there's that. So I so I think I did not read that model. And you know what. You can criticize Imperial College model for um, uh, the Imperial College folks, uh, Ferguson and company, for the messaging, maybe, or you can criticize the medium. I, I don't know. It's not about blame to me. I'm talking about how I read it. Yeah. What I read was I didn't take that number for number. I took that for under. I, I took a lot more qualitatively, you know. And 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 I think, and that's the thing is, even when the quantitative projections themselves can be wrong. Um, I think it was about the importance of social distancing activities and when they were implemented or not, or the importance of, and, and the kind of, the, the, the problems with waiting, I think is really the, the point there. Um, and the, the, and the, and, and, and the importance of like sustained social distancing, um, I think was the point. <laughs> it's, we're, even if you're talking about an order of magnitude difference, the importance of uh, you know if you was talking about a million, even if you're talking about a hundred thousand. I mean, even if you scale it down an organ of magnitude, I think that with the models have a lot of those models said to me was the earlier you early earlier you act has these profound long term consequences. So these and I think it was the it was kind of goad. I think the recommendation was to goad everyone into action as soon as possible because even weeks of waiting has, you know, and, and, you know, whether or not it's, you know, whatever the scale you're talking about, it has these profound kind of uh, consequences on loss of life. Okay. And let me, let me just, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt. I Please. just want to reiterate what I think is a very important point that you're making about models and how they connect to policy mm-hmm. decision-making, which is ex post facto, given the fact that there's so much uncertainty in the calculations mm-hmm. and the assumptions, mm-hmm. It's always going to be the case ex post facto when the actual experience comes in that when you compare it to the model predictions, there's going to be a gap there. Yes. That fact does not discredit modeling as a source of information for public decision making, because regardless of the specific numerical forecast, the qualitative insight that 
the system will move this way or that by this or that degree in response to this or that intervention could still be extremely informative. In the case at hand, the prediction that aggressive social distancing would stymie the rate at which the virus spread in the population has not been disproven by the fact that the particular numbers uh, forecast as the extent of the spread of the disease proved to be over forecast of what has actually happened. Uh, because the counterfactual of no aggressive intervention and a massive uh, problem mm -hmm. is probably still correct, mm -hmm. um, even though the actual numerical forecasts were in error. Is, did I say that correctly? That is that is exactly right, and it, it, it is exactly right. And I think I think what's interesting is, um, you know, so the question is if 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 you're going to if there's going to be a gap between the model and reality. I mean, you pointed out kind of. Why do we need models at all? And that's come up. And there's been a lot of criticism. If they're, you know, and I think you just stated it. I think they, they still are able to offer these important kind of qualitative and, and, you know, uh, insight, insights on a problem. And that, I mean, qualitative is actually underselling it because they're even quantitatively correct in some ways. They just may not be quantitatively correct at the, they're just not literalizations. They're just, you know, so, so yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe intervening here does decrease the amount of, infections or deaths by half whatever the scale is right so so you know so they actually do offer quantitative insight i think also interestingly in the context of an outbreak where we don't know things models are especially important because it's important to kind of put the facts that we have together to get some right otherwise you just have kind of isolated facts like particularly early in a pandemic right we don't really know like what the incubation period is so when you find out and that that is a that is basically the, the point between you're exposed to disease and when you develop symptoms, mm -hmm. um, you know, the amount of time, right? So you get that information, and then, and then you, the, the rate of spread, the reproductive number, the basic reproductive number, which we've all heard of now in the press, the R-naught factor, which is now very kind of well-known, yeah. which is a proxy for its contagiousness. So my point is, in a lot of ways, not only is it important for kind of building out the you know, even qualitative or you know, somewhat quantitative important uh, and relevant insights – it's also important for generating hypotheses and things that we need to be curious about. Like I know a lot of things I've read these models, early models, and I've realized, I've realized, huh, we don't really have an estimation for this. Maybe we need to think about kind of measuring how much pre-symptomatic symptomatic transmission there is. For example, it's a big one. We, we didn't really know that until fairly recently, but I think models kind of helped me as a scientist focus in on this area and go, we don't really have, I wonder how much it is. My research group is focusing on, spread of disease on surfaces. I'm interested in how this disease gets around on physical surfaces and objects. That's something we don't have. We, we just now are getting good estimations of. So my point is models have allowed me to put things together to ask, okay, well, we need to figure this out. What if the virus is surviving on the surface for yay long or they long? What are the implications for that kind of thing? Oh boy, now we need to be thinking about this more carefully. So my point is they're also hypothesis generating devices that allow us to kind of inform future studies um, and what have you. Okay. You're impressed by Fauci and uh, Burks and uh, Redfield and those, uh, those guys? Uh, I think overall, I mean, I think you wrote, you put all of them in together and I can kind of think, say things individually about them. Uh, I mean, I think, well, I mean, you know, I think, I think I am, I am impressed by Fauci's messaging. Um, I am impressed by Fauci's messaging. I mean, I think, I think, I, I just think that I, I just think as a whole, 
the response just is, is just a little bit hard to understand. So, so my point is, I think, I, I think, I think some, you know, Burks is a very well regarded, very well regarded in, in infectious disease epidemiology and, and certainly in, you know, um, but um, yeah, I think they've all kind of in some ways uh, managed to kind of, on, I mean, not, 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 they, they've all managed to fall under the politicization, you know, politicization of this pandemic in some ways. I think they're all kind of have to play in this, you know, cage, so to speak, of the politicization of this pandemic. And so, you know, because have of that, they not, you know, excuse me again, have they not uh, become as politicized, as politicized as you feel that they have? What would they have done differently? Well, I mean, I think. I think some pretty loud and clear and aggressive, you know, I, I, I just don't understand the fear of raising an alarm about a pandemic. That, that's something I don't really right. understand. Like, okay. I think there's this kind of thing where we can't scare people, um, but we're already talking about, it's all, it's going to emerge as one of the, it's, it's like the leading cause of death in the country. You know, I mean, we're already talking about something that's, very bad. So I, I, so I just, and we, and we already knew that from Italy. We already had that in hand. So it's like, I think given the facts that we had about how explosive this is and the conceivable loss of life, I think some really, really strong and direct alarmist messaging early would have been good. And I think, I think making, you know, and I think, again, I, I, even the econ- even the economic stuff would have, because the way it's happening now, yeah. this is going to play out for a longer time because of this, of the botched early response. Um, so I would have appreciated that. Uh, but I think operating within the, con- within the structures and the confines in which they've been given, I think certainly Fauci's messaging has been good. And I think Burks has been good at times and, um, you know, yeah. So yeah. you su- you subscribe to this uh, school of thought that says it's impossible to overreact. It, I can't remember exactly well, how it goes or who said yeah. it, but if we say we've overreacted, then that means we probably did it just about right. I always thought that was a confused. Yeah, uh, I don't think that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that. I don't think that. Um, I don't. But think you do that. think we did not? Uh, yeah, we no. did not react strongly enough at no, the outset. No, 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 no. I think I think from very early, from calling it the Chinese virus and the and the Wuhan virus. Yeah. I think from the beginning there was kind of a a a mea culpa uh, 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 slash uh, political scapegoating. It, it, that's that that was that was the playing field. I mean, it was much more about kind of who was going to be to blame for this thing than it was controlling it. So that and that you know, and I think all of the language played in that landscape. So with that. And, you know, you know, I, I, and so I think, no, I, I think that some really clear messaging that was aggressive and was based on the science and wasn't about kind of rebranding it. And, and so it was a branding, I guess is the good word, around this thing from very early in the United States. So, no, I think it's very, very clear and stark messaging. Because, I mean, the messaging could have been like this. Look, there's a lot of things we don't know. But given what we've observed in Europe, where we've had a lot of, like, it's a really good idea that we take extreme measures. The earlier we take them, right, the, 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 the sooner we can flatten the curve and the sooner we can get back to normal life. And that's just not how it happened. It was like a, it was botched, conflicted messaging. And like Fauci had to say this with, you know, 45 over his shoulder 
it, 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 and so the messaging just kind of wasn't clear or direct, um, which is the problem. I guess at that level, it's impossible that scientific advice is not going to be politicized to some degree. I expect that that would be the case no matter what the administration, sure. although per- perhaps it's more so here. Sure. Um, I mean, the job of the number 45 is uh, different from the job of the, the, you know, infectious disease expert. Right. Uh, and uh, the, the equities that are uh, at stake are public health, to be sure, but they're not only public health. They are the political prospects of uh, somebody who wants to be reelected. Right. They're also the economic well-being of, you know, millions or hundreds of totally. millions of people. So so I, I wouldn't want to be on the hot seat. I'm, I'm just now giving my opinion that uh, Fauci, you say you like his public messaging. I think it's really been pretty extraordinary, the mm-hmm. performance that he's rendered. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that there's a lot behind the scenes that we don't know mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, efforts to influence him uh, for uh, reasons that we could not credit. Mm-hmm. But uh, I got to ask you a political question, man. Okay. Oh, okay. Brace yourself. Now you're an African American. So yes. am I. So is Jerome yes. Adams, Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, Adams got in the hot water <laughs> with a lot of people, not only because he used colloquial language referring uh-huh. to grandma and grandpapa, which right. was a little bit unusual. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Ebonics from the Surgeon General. But also because he seemed to suggest that there were mm-hmm. some behavioral shifts yep. in uh, African-American uh, life, social life yep. and whatnot that might uh, facilitate, you know, don't drink alcohol, uh, you yep. know, stay six feet apart, wear your mask yep. and your gloves. And he directed his uh, message to African-Americans. Yep. How, how did you feel about that? Oh, I found that very offensive. Um, and I found it personally offensive and I found it scientifically irresponsible and medically irresponsible. Um, now, Here's the thing. Let, let, let me let me let me be most charitable to that perspective. I'll start with it. Right. Um, let's just say that all of those things are true. Right. Like factually true. Right. That the, that these behaviors are concentrated in these communities um, at a way which is particularly when it comes to like smoking is one of the worst um, yeah. kind of associates with this disease. And that one. Is not necessarily right. Like, is not concentrated in those communities. Actually, not especially so. No, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know the numbers so. offhand, but I'm so smoking. I would be... Right. So, so, so my point is, so and again, so that's part of the problem, right there, right? Like, it's kind of like this cherry picking of behaviors that you're. You yeah. Know. But like, let's just say, but let's just say it was <laughs> rich for charity's sake. Okay. I think it's just it's in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. If you want general messaging for Black and Latino communities that they need to kind of improve. You could have been doing that all this time. Like there, there, you could have a weekly address. You didn't need a pandemic. You to didn't have need that a message. pandemic to have that message. And I think to do that in the middle of a pandemic, where the disproportionate number of deaths have been, you know, particularly African Americans, it's just deeply, it's deeply offensive, and it, and it, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's scapegoating. So, like, even if the language wasn't offensive, even if he had said it in a manner that was not kind of colloquial and and beneath, I believe, the office of the Surgeon General. Um, they say he has said it in a way that made us both more comfortable. I mean, I don't know how uncomfortable it made you, but I'm just saying, say, uh-huh. say the language was, you know, better and more careful. Um, just scapegoating alone in the middle of a pandemic is just deeply irresponsible as a surgeon general. I mean, your job is to, um, you know, I mean, the messaging on that was like clearer and more direct than the messaging on gloves and masks. <laughs> Would you, know you have I mean? a problem if uh, the NBA or somebody, we're going to trot out uh, Steph Curry or uh, LeBron James or somebody 
And they were going to say, not necessarily based on race, but because mm-hmm. of their race, the effect of them saying it would be especially pronounced. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I want all of our fans to, you know, uh, practice social distancing. I mean, you know, the hygiene thing yeah. is really important. You know, come yep. on, let's get with it. Let's bend that curve. Yep. Let's do our part. Yep. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think that hypothetical kind of doesn't work for me because Seth Curry and LeBron James do messaging for like in the black community. Like they actually, like Seth Curry had Fauci on a, a live interview. Like, oh, I didn't know that, but yeah, that's good. Yeah, he's actually had, and like LeBron James, like open schools, and like these these are people who do things in the African and American community that actually like actually do address. I think LeBron James's students eat, get very good meals that actually address the issues that the Surgeon was talking about. So I think both of them actually work at that. They they do that messaging better regularly. So I don't. I, I think both of them are smart enough to not talk about it in that manner. So I, so I, so I, that's why I have a hard, hard time kind of like imagining that scenario, uh, particularly in those two cases who are very kind of strong and relatively outspoken African-Americans, prominent African Point taken, point yeah. taken. Okay, I got to thank you. This is Brandon Agbunu, whom I'm talking with here. He's assistant professor of evolutionary biology and other stuff uh, <laughs> here at Brown University. Uh, and uh, I'm very grateful for you giving us some of your time. Uh, Professor Lowry, Glenn, I'm, I'm honored. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. All right. Well, we're going to have to talk about that Charles Murray book yes. maybe a little bit later in the yes. summer or something like that. Happy to. Very, very happy to. Anytime. All right. Uh, so long then.